Yeah, I've got kind of mixed feelings here today. Um, beyond what you might expect, the usual happy and sad feelings of maybe anxiety and relief, disappointment and discouragement and eager anticipation. Maybe somehow I feel a little bit like the uh, plastic tub of something in the back of your fridge. It's not all fuzzy and green and blue, but uh, you're not quite sure what to do with it. You're not sure whether it's good to eat or not. And into all those kind of feelings, I've been trying to, uh, to work out what to say this morning. So as I, was, as I was thinking of this day and thinking of what to share as I'm uh, here on my last Sunday, let's see if we can get our technology going. This is kind of typical of what happens here at this point, isn't it? It's comic relief. There we go. I was thinking of Bilbo Baggins, who had invited at his uh, 111st birthday party many of his friends and family to join with him, and they had a great feast and some little bit of revelry, and he stood up and he said as part of his speech, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like half of you as well as half of you half as well as you deserve. The story goes on to record that this was unexpected and rather difficult. There was some scattered clapping, but most of them were trying to work it out to see if it came to a compliment. I've looked at this a number of times, and I'm not sure what he was trying to say when he said that either. Uh, and it's a great quote. And I always wanted to fit it into a sermon, but I never found a place. And so whether it fits here or not, there it is. <laughs> but <laughs> on a different note, I was, I was also thinking of John Steinbeck, one of my favorite authors, who in the novel of, called The Winter of Discontent, he wrote, Farewell has a sweet sound of reluctance. Goodbye is short and final, a word with teeth. teeth sharp to bite through the string that ties past to the future. I was also thinking of Charles Dickens in The Tale of Two Cities, and for many of you it will be a familiar, it starts off in a familiar uh, phrase. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. All these things kind of said a little bit about what I was feeling. I also thought maybe I could just go with a simple thanks for the memory. So I was been struggling to think about what to say and what would be uh, some fitting words to, uh, to end my time here at BCBC with. And in the end, what I wanted to leave you with was simply something from the Bible, from the Gospel, the Gospel. And this is the Gospel from the Apostle Paul. And as he writes to the church at Corinth, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1-5. to He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. 
For what I passed on to you as of first importance, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. I don't want to leave with anyone saying we didn't hear the Gospel from Pastor Gilbert. And so today, I just want to talk a little bit, take a few minutes to talk about Jesus and what Paul was saying here. Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. And Corinth is famous for the Corinthian columns, these uh, columns that held up the building and had the ornate carvings on the top. That's where the name Corinthian Columns comes from. It's from the, church, from, the, from the city of Corinth. And Paul knew the city of Corinth, and this is part of the ruins of the city of Corinth. And he knew that church very well. He spent, uh, he spent much time with the church in Corinth. He, he wasn't, uh, it doesn't seem like he was the one who was planted this church. But he was there and he strengthened the church. And in Acts chapter 18, we read about uh, Paul in Corinth. And he spends uh, a fair bit of time in Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, verses 9 to 10, he receives a word from God. And it's not just clear how he received this, whether it was some kind of dream or vision, but it says one night, so presumably he was sleeping and, he, and Paul received this in a dream, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be silent. Keep on speaking. Do not be afraid. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So this was an encouragement to Paul to press on, to keep going. uh, That there might be opposition ahead, but that God is going to be with him and going to protect him and care for him along the way. It goes on to say in verse 11, so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the Word of God. So Paul knew them very well. He spent a lot of time with them. And this was a a church that was, was growing. That he was working with the leaders there and helping them to grow and mature. In verses 12 to 17, we read in Acts chapter 18, verses 12 to 17, we read about the Jews who are there and get upset at what Paul is trying to do. And so they bring charges against him to the Roman authorities. This doesn't really go very well for them. And Gallio, who was the proconsul of the area, who was the Roman leader who had authority over the city, over that general area, but specifically over the city of Corinth, he refuses to hear the charges against Paul. And the crowd, instead of turning on Paul, they turn on the Jewish leaders and, and, uh, and start attacking them because of all the uproar that they have, they have caused. So we, we read about this, about Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth. Perhaps he, he's also mentioned in Acts chapter 20, verses 1-3, to where it says, uh, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arriving in Greece where he stayed three months. So Corinth was a city in Greece, so perhaps at that point too, Paul was also in the city of Corinth. 
And he was thankful for that church. He was thankful for the people that were there. He was thankful uh, for their faith and for the, how they uh, were, were, were living and living out the Gospel. He encouraged them to stay faithful to the very end. But he also sees problems with the church in Corinth. He isn't seeing the church through what we would call rose-colored glasses. He doesn't have a, a false view of how perfect they are and how everything is just right. Like sometimes we do when we say, oh, we should be like the early church. And I always say, you need to read the book of 1 Corinthians and find out what the early church was like and then see if we really want to be like them. What we find actually is that the church, the early church is not all that different uh, from our church today. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses all kinds of issues. He talks about in chapter 3 about worldliness in the church. In chapter 4, he talks about their arrogance and he calls them out on that. In chapter 5, he talks about sexual immorality that involved someone sleeping with their stepmother. And that the church was proud of that. And he says, how could, you, how could that be? In chapter 6, he talks about lawsuits in the church and uh, more sexual immorality. He talks about how to handle food that's been sacrificed to idols. And in chapter 8, he encourages them to leave idolatry, the worship of other gods. And he exhorts them that this is not the path you should be on. In chapter 10 and following, there's a long section there about orderly worship. And he has a lot to say about that. And one wonders just what the worship at the church of Corinth was like for him to spend so much time writing to them and saying, this is how your worship services should be conducted. Um, it, it just makes you wonder what, the, what actually was going on there. And so after all of that correction, chapters and chapters, words after words, phrases after phrases, sentence after sentence of correction to the church at Corinth, he says, I want to remind you of what is really important here. He says, I want, this is of first importance. We might say in our language today, he says, this is first and foremost above everything else. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to be sure of. This is what you need to have absolutely clear in your minds. And that's what I want to share with you today. This is exactly what he emphasized to them. Amidst all the other things he wanted to say to them, he says, this is the Gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And he sums it up so neatly so easily. He says, this is what is of first importance. This is what you have to hold on to. And so he feels this need to remind them of what is of first importance. Of what is first should be first and foremost in their minds. They are so busy, but with all the other things that are going on in the church, and some of the things that they're dealing with, and some of them they're not, which is why Paul feels he needs to address them. He feels they may have forgotten what the main thing is. Stephen Covey, who some of you, I'm sure you've read some of his books, he is the one who said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's a, a great passage, uh, a, great, uh, a great, great little phrase for people to hang on to. Uh, often the hard part in, in following that in your life, though, is figuring out 
what is the main thing? And this is when you're, when you're in your business, you say, well, what is the main thing? That's really the, the hard part. Once you've figured that out, then you can figure out how to keep that the main thing that you're doing. Because, but it recognizes there's pull on us from all different directions, for all different uh, things that uh, are there in our life. And how do we keep that main thing the main thing? And I think that's what Paul is telling the, the church at Corinth here. Amidst all the things that are going on, keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the Gospel front and center. This is what is most important. And so for us as a church, as this letter has passed down to, to, from generation to generation and finds itself here for us today, what is the main thing for us? The main thing is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so, Paul is reminding the church at Corinth of the, of the thing that is the main thing and that main thing stays the main thing for us today. That's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, he gives uh, some background to the Gospel. And he says, I want to remind you of the Gospel. And he says, first of all, that he preached... Uh, to you that he preached to them, uh, he says, "I want to remind you, and that this is this is the gospel. This is the the good news, the truth that he he preached it to them." So he's saying, "Remember what I." So he's saying, "Remember what I told you," and he's reminding them. And he doesn't he doesn't need to go into a lengthy explanation. He just needs to remind them quickly because he was with them for a year and a half, so they heard him. They saw him. He was there in person. He preached to them. He taught them. So he says, I just need to remind you of this. And then he, he says, they received it. So it wasn't like they were not listening. But he, he reminds them, okay, I told you this. Then you received it. So you, you heard this. And then he says, on which you have taken your stand. They sacrificed something for that. We don't know exactly what that looked like in that church at that time. But somehow... They took a stand on this. And presumably, it was, it was a stand in, in the society that they were in. The, the city of Corinth was a city that was uh, very corrupt, very immoral. It was known that was kind of the, the trademark of the city. And presumably, the believers there that Paul had worked with, they, they were taking a stand. And they were saying, we won't be like that. We will not be like the culture that's putting the pressure on around us. So, so he, he mentions that they have taken their stand. They somehow sacrificed something. We don't know exactly what, but somehow they sacrificed for the Gospel. And he says this brings salvation. He says, by this Gospel you are saved. By this Gospel you are saved. So this Gospel is one that brings salvation. But he also, at the end of verse 2, he gives a bit of a caution. He says, he says, otherwise you have believed in vain. Otherwise you believed in vain. So there's a, a caution about believing in vain, about believing somehow wrongly. Somehow there's something there that doesn't, uh, maybe doesn't ring true, is not quite right with them. And so he cautions them about uh, what about believing in vain? About ha having some kind of belief that doesn't actually lead to salvation. So, what would that be? Well, we get some clues about it in the letter of 
1 Corinthians uh, itself, he talks about in the beginning of the letter, they are following leaders. And in the beginning of the letter that he writes to them, he says, some follow uh, Paul, some follow Apollos, some follow Cephas. Uh, some are even boasting that they follow Christ, which is a good thing. But, the, but what he's really pointing out, and this is in the beginning of, of 1 Corinthians, he's pointing out the pride that people have. They're not really following Jesus. They're saying, look at me. Look at who I'm following. I'm following the best leader. I'm following Paul. I'm following Apollos. I'm following Cephas. I'm following Jesus. They're saying, they're putting the focus on themselves. Look at who I'm following. And that's believing in vain. When you look and you say, look at who, and, and you believe and you follow someone so that you can say, look at who I'm following. Paul's saying, that's not, that's not real believing. You're just following, you're just looking for someone to follow. You're not really following Christ. The other thing that you can see from 1 Corinthians is that they're following their own desires. And you see that as he talks about again and again about, about the things that are going on in the church. They're not really, they don't seem to be interested in, in the gospel, but they're interested in their own desires, in the, in following the desires of their flesh. And so, He's saying, this is, this is uh, you're following your own desires. You're not really following Christ. And so this is believing in something that I can follow my own desires and, uh, and it'll be okay. We don't see this one so much in 1 Corinthians, but certainly in other parts of the Bible. People are following their own ideas. Instead of following what Paul and others had taught them, instead of following really what Jesus has taught them, he says that they're following other things. They are worshiping idols. Paul does mention uh, that caution against worshiping idols. And in other places, we read about a caution about following false teachers. And so this is a real problem for the church. And so he says this is, this is the caution he gives them. Because you can believe, but you can believe in vain. Because you might not be believing in the right thing. And so then he goes on to remind them of what that actually is. The Gospel. And that's in verses 3 and 5. And here He gives the Gospel. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel, He says, that is of first importance. It's good to come back to that every once in a while. To come back to that thing that is of first importance and remind yourself of it. We can uh, follow down trails of Christian, even Christian doctrine and start to get lost and start to get confused in our own minds about what it is we really believe. Certainly, uh, this, this happened, uh, this, was, this was one of the things, and not to discourage anybody from going to seminary, but this is one of the things that happens at seminary. You end up uh, studying all these things and studying them in such great detail and having to write lengthy essays on small things and and uh, spending hours reading uh, textbooks that are thousands of pages long, and you, you end up getting confused by all that. And you end up trying to understand all these minutiae, and we, there's, there's a joke about uh, uh, debating how many angels can dance on the head of, the pin, of a pin, and you, you get all caught up in that sort of thing, and then you forget what is the Gospel, what is really important. And I think... This is what Paul is encouraging them to as well. This is, 
This is the basics. You have to come back to this again and again, over and over, just to remind yourself what is the Gospel. And that's what Paul is doing. And that's what I want to leave with you here today. What is the Gospel? And it all comes down very simply. He says, first thing, Christ died for our sins. And he says this is according to the Scriptures. Very simple. Christ died for our sins. But then the question is, why did He need to die? What was, the, what was the point? What was the purpose of Him dying? Christ died for our sins. Why does, it, why does my sin need anybody at all to die for it? If I've said something wrong and somebody's offended, I go and I say sorry and they say, oh, I forgive you and then it's all taken care of. right? Isn't it all good? But that's not the way it works. I mean, well, that should be the way it works. And that's what we should do. But there's also, our sin is also an offense against God. We have, we have done something that's offended God. And that sin demands a punishment. What is that punishment? That punishment, the Bible says, is, our, is death. Someone has to die for that. Someone has to die for that sin. So Christ died for us. That's the Gospel. Christ died for our sins because there has to be some kind of payment made for it. Why is it Christ? Because God loves us. And did He die for everybody? For those who put their faith, for their trust in Him. Yeah. And he says this is according to Scriptures. This is not something that Paul made up. It's not something that the disciples made up after the facts to try and justify why their, uh, their leader uh, had to die on the cross. This was something that was according to Scriptures, that it was fulfilling thousands of years of writings, what we call the Old Testament. It was always part of God's plan. You can go back to the creation account when sin first enters the world and you see echoes of that uh, Christ uh, defeating sin back in that. It was always God's plan that this would happen. Although the people long before Jesus came may not have understood fully what that was going to look like. God bringing that salvation, it was there. It was always something that was important. So he says, first of all, that Christ died for our sins. The second thing is that Christ was buried. He didn't faint or pass out or pretend. His disciples just didn't make it up. But He really did die. He was bound in the death clothes and He was wrapped up and He was put in the tomb. The tomb was sealed. Christ really did die. That's a key part of what the Gospel is. And that's what Paul highlights. That Christ died for our sins. He died. And then the third thing he says was that He was raised on the third day. Death couldn't hold Him. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? It's not there because death didn't defeat Jesus. Death was not a, is not a victory for the evil one over God, but, death is victor, but the resurrection gives victory over the death. It's seen, and, and when you read the account of Jesus' uh, death and resurrection, you see that the, the, the disciples 
feel defeated and discouraged. They're disheartened, but it turns to victory when Jesus rises from the dead. This is, this is crucial. This is the whole important, uh, the key part of the Gospel is that Jesus was raised on the third day. Paul says that if Jesus wasn't raised, our faith is worthless. It's in vain. It's pointless. But Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus even told them that, on, that He was going to rise in what seemed impossible to the disciples until it happened. And it gave them that assurance to go and change the world because He was risen. Those twelve followers of Jesus changed the world. They changed the course of world history not because they followed a good teacher, but because Jesus rose from the dead. This is key for us. You have to know that Jesus rose from the dead. He died, He was buried, and He rises from the dead to bring us victory over death. That's that death that we would suffer because of our sins. We don't have to because of Christ. And then it says He appeared to many. His resurrection was not just a figment of someone's imagination or something that someone made up, but it says He appeared to Cephas. And then to the twelve, and it goes on, He says that He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And He appeared to James, the apostles, and He appeared to Paul Himself, He says in verse 8, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. He says, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Jesus came to Paul in a dramatic vision that blinded Him. So He appeared to many. The living, risen Christ. And so there you have it. The Gospel of Jesus Christ in summary. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, raised from the dead, and He was seen by many. And these are basic truths that have been affirmed through generations and generations. We read in the Apostles' Creed, we read this about Jesus and look for these parts uh, that are there in the Apostles' Creed, the parts, of, uh, the parts that Paul has given us. He's, it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffer under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is at the right hand of God the Father. and He will come to judge the living and the dead. And it goes, So it goes on to say something about the future as well. And so this is, this is how the church formulated the, uh, this, this doctrine of Christ and who He was and what He did. And it all goes back to that which Paul says is of first importance. But then there's the question, what do I know about this? Is it enough that Jesus died so that now I know this, I can go on with my life? We can know things, but we don't believe them. If someone comes to you and says, you know, 2 plus 2 equals 5, you can say, I, I, know, I know that. I know you believe that. But do you believe it? No. So, you can know something without believing it. 
So there's another part to this. It's not enough just to know this and say, okay, I know these and, and, and maybe and as facts, but there's something else to it as well. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Our role in this, in this truth of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 1-5, to our role is to have faith. To believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Saved from the penalty of your sin. And so we need to have faith. That grace part, God has extended to us grace in sending Jesus Christ to come and to die on the cross for us. We don't deserve that gift. It comes by grace. God gives it to us because He loves us. And He has grace. And He shows us mercy. Our role is to receive that by faith. And so we have to decide. Am I going to receive this or not? I reached a point in my walk, and it wasn't when I was walking with God, but when I was learning about the Gospel. And so I had a stirring in my soul, and I was searching for some deeper meaning in life and for something that I needed in my life. There was something lacking. And so for about a year... I learned. I went to church. I was reading my Bible. I was praying without really maybe believing what I, what I was praying. But I was looking for, for answers. We ended up in a small church that taught the Bible. And so I was learning what this all meant. What did it mean to be a Christian? What was the Gospel? What, who was Jesus? What did He do? How does this impact my life today? And so I learned, and I learned a lot. I would, I would learn, I learned the basics, and I learned, I learned a bit more. I wouldn't say I knew knew everything, certainly not, but uh, but I learned a fair bit. And then, as I was praying, as I was reading my Bible, as we were uh, as we were going to church and doing all these things, I came across a passage in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever, whoever does not gather with me scatters. I was struck by this verse in particular um, at, at that time. At, so after a time of searching, I encountered this verse. And I realized I needed to decide. I felt like God was speaking to me and saying, are you with me or are you against me? And as I wrestled with this, it was like, I know enough. I don't know everything, but I know enough. Am I going to follow Christ or not? Am I going to accept Him as my Savior or not? And I wrestled with that for a while. For maybe a couple weeks. And then one day our pastor came to our home and shared the Gospel with me and he said, are you ready to accept Christ as your Savior? And I couldn't bring myself as much as I might have wanted to to say, no, I think I'm just going to go living my life my own way. Instead of saying no, I said yes. I received by faith the gift that God had for me. As I shared this story with someone uh, one time about needing to decide, am I for Jesus or against Him? 
you know, one of the things I realized was that there was no middle ground. There was no neutral zone to stand in. You either need to decide for or against. Someone commented to me after I shared that. They said, there are no fence sitters. You might think you're sitting on the fence, but he said, there's no fence sitters. The fence is in enemy's territory. If you're sitting on the fence, you've made a decision. Do you nod and say yes? Or do you really believe? Have you made that decision? And so as I finish here today and I finish my time here at BCBC, let me leave you with this question. Are you for Jesus or against Him? Do you believe or not? This question has eternal significance for us. We each need to answer that question and understand the importance of that decision. It's not just about here today, tomorrow, for the next year, 10 years, 50 years, but it's for all eternity. It's an important question. Understand, as you make that decision, nobody's going to force you, but understand the importance of it. For me, I couldn't say no. And I accepted Christ as my Savior. And that's the decision we all have to make. Can you say not just that Jesus died for sins, but that He died for my sin? That I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And so as we come to the Lord's table here, and as Pastor Brian leads us in the Lord's table, it's somehow fitting because we remember Christ's, uh, Christ's death and His sacrifice for us. Pastor Brian.